Welcome to the Civil Engineering Podcast, the podcast focused on helping civil engineering professionals succeed by exposing them to interesting civil engineering projects and successful civil engineering professionals around the world. Hosts Anthony Fasano and Christian Knudsen had successful but unconventional civil engineering careers and now focus on helping civil engineering professionals achieve their goals in work and life. Welcome to episode 94 of the Civil Engineering Podcast. I'm Anthony Fasano, licensed professional engineer turned executive coach and author of Engineering Your Own Success. I now focus on helping engineers become more effective managers through content, coaching, and training through the Engineering Management Institute. And in this episode, which is the fourth of five episodes in our special five-episode infrastructure series, Chris Knutson, my co-host, who's been back on the show more often now, which I'm sure you're happy about, He's going to be taking you with him to interview Kate Harris, president and CEO of Stanley Consultants. Chris is going to ask her about her career path, leadership in general, her management philosophy, and also about the future and the global trends. A lot of our infrastructure series episodes have done a deep dive on infrastructure itself, where Chris is going to really ask Kate about the future. What does the future hold? She's going to maybe talk a little bit about public-private partnerships and multi-stakeholder projects. A lot of exciting stuff that Chris asks her about, and I'm excited that you're going to be there with him. Both Chris and I believe that to be successful as a civil engineering professional, you must constantly improve your soft skills, your interpersonal skills, and your management skills. And that's exactly what this show is going to help you do. And if you stick around till the end, till a hot seat segment, Chris will also ask Kate, about some of her own tendencies as CEO and her career and how she built it. Now, before we get into the interview with Kate Harris, president and CEO of Stanley Consulting, I do want to recognize our two sponsors for this five-episode series, Red Vector and Dan Foss. I'm happy to introduce our sponsor, Red Vector. Red Vector, a Vector Solutions brand, is a leading provider of online continuing education and performance support solutions for the architecture, engineering, construction, and facilities management fields. When you train with Red Vector, you'll be in good company with the other industry-leading organizations and professionals who have chosen to reduce risk, ensure compliance, hone skills, and meet their CE or PDH requirements. More on Red Vector later on in this episode. Now I'd like to take a moment to tell you about our other sponsor, Danfoss. Danfoss is a company that is focused on building the sustainable communities of the future. They dream up and manufacture a lot of the solutions that go into all kinds of different infrastructure systems. They call it engineering tomorrow. As we've been discussing in this entire infrastructure series, we need smarter infrastructure solutions to support urban centers as they grow. Danfoss has a project that is all about that, and I'll tell you a little more about it later on in this episode. Now I'd like to introduce our guest for today's civil engineering conversation so that you get to know a little bit more about her before Chris dives into the interview with her. Kate Harris, president and CEO of Stanley Consultants, has 25 years of international experience in the construction engineering and consulting industry. Stanley Consultants provides engineering, environmental, and construction services at over 30 offices worldwide. Founded in 1913, the firm has completed engagements in all 50 states and 110 countries and is ranked among the largest engineering companies in the United States, which is extremely impressive. 
Kate Harris graduated with a first-class honors degree in quantity surveying from the University of the West of England in 1993, which Chris will ask her about. She has also completed the advanced management and intellectual property programs from Harvard. Harris has a broad range of contractor, client, and consultant experience encompassing strategy development, risk management, building high-performing teams, developing client relationships, and profitability-growing businesses. Most recently, Harris provided board and executive advisory services following her global commercial officer role with MWH Global, now part of Stantec. During her 17-year tenure with the firm, she's credited with integrating service lines and setting global policy, performance measures, and business practices. An active advocate of talent development, she continues to mentor upcoming generations of leaders. All right, now I'm going to pass it off to my co-host, Chris Knudsen. Here we go. Civil Engineering Podcast. Civil Engineering Podcast. Hi, everyone. Uh, Chris again, and I am sitting here with Kate Harris. Kate, welcome to the Civil Engineering Podcast. Thank you very much, Chris. How are you? I'm doing fabulous. We're uh, sitting here in London. Beautiful sunny day. I think on the back end now of our fifth week without rain, which is hard unheard of. Yeah, absolutely unheard of. So anybody who thinks that it, it uh, always rains and is overcast in England needed to have been here this uh, this summer. So anyway, it is what it is. So we're looking forward to this conversation. We've got a uh, number of uh, great, great things we're going to get into today. Uh, for those that are listening, I'm, I'm sitting here with a uh, civil engineering industry leader in the U.S. However, she speaks with a, with a U.K. accent, so uh, definitely international. And I uh, need to start off with one of the first questions because people are going to hear your, have heard your bio, mm-hmm. know a little bit about who you are. Mm-hmm. And interesting enough that you left the university with a degree in quantity surveying. Correct. So I'm kind of curious of how that degree parlayed into where you are today as CEO and president of an architectural engineering firm. Well, I think the most obvious connection would be um, quantity surveying is part of built environment studies. So it includes engineering, construction, surveying. So there's a connection, but I, I'm not sure that it actually gives you a segue, a natural segue into engineering. I certainly didn't start as, a, as an engineer. I'm not an engineer and I didn't start in consulting either. I started in construction. So I think what it did was it just gave me an appetite for creative problem solving and buildability. So if you think about quantity surveying, it's, it's a little like a construction MBA. So there's some creativity, some problem solving, and then there's some other academic subjects. It's a technical degree. And so it, it allows you to fit in in a technical environment, but add something different. So I have a more of a business bent than I have an engineering bent. Okay. It's interesting because we, we have had conversations before and you've brought up and mentioned your experiences early in your career mm-hmm. in construction. Mm-hmm. Kind of curious if you might share with us, with the audience, a little bit about your, you know, some of your most most notable or more notable experiences from your time working in construction. And I bring that up just because there's there's not a lot of women that typically mm-hmm, go mm-hmm. into the construction arena. So mm-hmm. that says a lot about your fortitude right. and character. Right. So I'm interested if you can maybe just share a little bit with us about that. So I went straight from I did a four year degree, a year out in industry in the '90s, which was a recession in the UK. And I did my year out with a civil engineering contractor because I wanted to really learn about building things. You know, I was smart enough to realize as a female that the academic side might come quite naturally, but I also need to assimilate in our industry. And so I spent a year out in the field, in a trailer, uh, learning how to build things, how to solve problems, how to work in a team. And uh, that, I think, is a very, very good foundation for anybody. 
And then as I went through my career, I started to look at different aspects. I, I went into the client side for a little while, so really starting to understand what mattered to clients rather than, you know, on the service end of construction or consulting. And then uh, I went into consulting and I've been in consulting for about 20 years now. And so throughout my career, um, I've really looked at trying all different new things. So line and staff, regional versus global, construction versus you know, client versus consultant, and really trying to get a very, very round, broad uh, view of our industry. Sure. Because I think that's really what gives us the edge in terms of trying to figure out what matters to people. Understanding if you've been in their shoes, then, then you know what matters them, what questions to ask. So less about real jobs. I think jobs are just you know, an opportunity to learn things differently. Uh, for me, it's all about trying new things and really being fearless enough to say, that's not very linear. <laughs> it's something I may not be very good at, something I may not wish to do, but it's something that's really important to get a, a really broad-based understanding of, of our industry, you know, who we serve and how we do things in the right way with the right levels of value for people. So, Okay, all right. So I think that says a little bit right there. You mentioned a couple different times this broad experience mm. that you've mm. had. So it says, yeah. you know, I start to pick up on that as a, as a thread, just because my understanding of someone who's going to be at the top of an organization mm -hmm. tends to have that broad level of experience. Mm -hmm. Well, I think it's changed. I think years ago, it would be um, quite a linear progression. Mm -hmm. Engineers would then become maybe, you know, engineering managers or project managers. Then they would get into more mid-level manager. And you'd find yourself working up through an industry. And our industry is very complex. Our clients' problems are very, very complex. And so today, we need to, to be as strong on innovation and on talent management as we are on technical problem solving. Uh, we need to understand how to bring different uh, groups of people through the organization. And so the level of complexity, I think, requires a level of broad understanding. So, so I think career paths are changing. Certainly when I came into the industry, it was very much you were supposed to have your planned career path. It's a very linear mm -hmm. process. It didn't sit very comfortably with me or my experience. And so, you know, I'm a real fan of, of looking at sort of rotational assignments where you can learn a little bit about things that you may or may not like, you may or may not be good at, but certainly give you a broader understanding on which to serve your clients. Certainly, certainly. What do you think exceptional AE firms get right? We had a bit of this discussion before. We did, um, yes, we did. Yes, I think we've moved away from AE firms are good at delivering projects. I think exceptional AE firms understand that the business we're actually in is client service and client experience. And so whilst we might be great problem solvers, technical problem solvers, business problem solvers, actually our job is to work alongside our clients and help them achieve their goals, many of which, by the way, are not known to them at the time. Mm -hmm. so, so we need to be partners in terms of business thinking. Uh, we need to be partners in terms of uh, management skill and, and advice. We certainly need to be technically capable and creative but we really need to understand our clients better. So I think the AE firms of today and the future are the ones that understand that projects are what we deliver, people and clients are who we serve. So, so I, think, I think that's the number one thing. Then I think that the real issue is, you know, what do you bring to the party? So, so we talked a little bit about that too. And so our, our industry is quite consolidated now. We have a lot of large players. The company I work for, Stanley Consultants, is about a thousand members privately and independently held. And we all have a part to play. And I think it's very, very important that companies today understand what they're bringing to their clients, not what they're just bringing to their constituents and their shareholders. So, Just to kind of maybe pull the string a little bit further on mm -hmm. this client service mm -hmm. discussion. So I think this is interesting for engineers because mm -hmm. 
engineers are typically looking at, at a technical right. problem. How do I right. solve this technical issue? When we think about clients, we think about the client's technical issue. Mm -hmm. But as you and I have been discussing mm -hmm. you know, prior to the interview, here, yeah. you know, yeah. the, the client's issues are typically more than just that technical aspect. So as a, let's say, an engineering manager who maybe is very much into the engineering realm for the first time now looking at this, maybe beginning to conceive that they need to look at beyond just the technical, yeah. what would be some advice that you would give that engineering manager to help increase their ability to be able to work better with those clients? I think it starts before you become the engineering manager. I'll say that a lot of the education establishments that I work for have now started to think more broadly than engineering as a technical field mm -hmm. and are starting to think about it as a societal field. So in other words, it's mm -hmm. about people, creative solving within a community, within a group of people. And so I think we're starting to see the engineers of the future having, you know, a little bit more sort of left brain, right brain uh, training, starting to understand the impact of being able to connect communities but by the time you get to an engineering manager level, you've hopefully understood that, that yesterday's job isn't the same as today's job and tomorrow's job because those jobs change all the way through. So engineering managers tend to have, unless they are you know, subject matter experts, they tend to have people that they're also trying to coach and mentor and bring through the organization. And so that is a people skill, not a technical skill. So by now we're starting to realize that we're there about identifying great talent, mm -hmm. mentoring, coaching, providing support and direction and letting great people move forward. And if you apply the similar sort of skills with your clients and really start to assess you know, what their needs are, then I think you know, you've got a little bit of, of what we need to do. The second thing I think which is probably just as important, if not more so, is the ability to listen and listen very well and very actively. We often find that we know people who listen in order to be able to say the next thing they want to say. So they're queuing up their next statement. And you find that in some engineers where very keen to sell a job, for instance, and therefore, as they are as a client is speaking, they're just trying to figure out how that works with what they need to say next with mm -hmm. what's on their list. I'd encourage people not to do that. I think the key to working with clients is to listen actively for what they need, not what you want to say. So, you know, listening would be um, the next thing that I think active listening. And then the third thing, which I think is, we were talking earlier about sort of military backgrounds and how that works and, you know, all these soft skills, which are seen as incredibly soft, but actually are not incredibly soft. And the one I think is probably the biggest one is the ability to have empathy. So over and above just listening, and trying to diagnose what your clients need, you're now into a situation of saying, what's it like to be in their shoes? You know, what would I need to do in order to really help them with both their, you know, sort of their diagnosed and their stated goals, but also those other issues that they're dealing with, which they may not be sharing with you. So as you get to an engineering manager, you're now bringing your technical diagnostic skills and you're applying those to people skills. And at that point, we're in, really into, you know, it's not about me anymore. It's really all about you. And those are the, the engineering companies and the engineering leaders of the future, I think. The ones who understand that combination of IQ and EQ is what we're going to need going forward. Yeah, that's brilliant. And that Kate, really builds on a general theme that, mm. that Anthony mm. and I have carried through mm. all the podcasts. Yeah. Been this, this need for engineers to really develop themselves beyond purely the technical skill. That, that piece is important. That's what marks us in our profession as civil engineers, but mm. that this need for being able to connect with people, having empathy and mm. emotional intelligence and all those other aspects yeah. are so vitally important. Yeah. So interesting to hear that. So you've been in the, uh, the industry for over 25 years. I guess we'll ask the, 
this is a two-part question. So okay. the first part is going to be looking back in the rear, sure. rear view mirror. Sure. What have you seen as maybe the more notable changes that have occurred mm -hmm. since when you started to where we are today? So there's a couple of key themes. I mean, I think the industry has consolidated. We've talked a little bit about that. So we see some of the mega mergers happening, mm -hmm. which, which is both good news for the business and gives some challenges too. I think we've seen a, a consolidation in different ways too. When I joined, uh, you know, construction was very different from consulting, was very different from client. Everybody had their little little piece to play. And I think we've got more sophisticated, more integrated. So um, you've seen constructors move up the value chain. You've seen consultants move down the value chain. You've seen all sorts of different types of procurement mechanisms for you know, who should have the controlling risk-based role. I think we've become much more sophisticated than that over the last mm -hmm. 20 years. I think there's a general understanding that, you know, we all have that part to play in a partnership and an alliance-based role, but we also need to be accountable for what we're doing well. So we look for what binds us in a joint venture or alliance, recognising that each of us bring different skills that we should be able to rely on. We see much more sophistication around procurement. It's become much more cost commoditized at the engineering end, and there's much more risk shedding going on around the world. So it's a tighter, consolidated, I think, competitive environment less you know, mid-level players as we see the top end start to consolidate, but still room for everybody within the value chain, I think. As you go forward, then you say, okay, well, which might be your next part That's of your exactly question. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, where's the future going on all of that? I wonder whether the amount of consolidation can continue. Uh, some of our larger competitors, and who are sometimes our colleagues, sometimes our partners, sometimes our clients, uh, we're getting to the hundreds of thousands of employees. I wonder whether that's sustainable in the long term. You know, we've certainly done a lot of work in driving value out of the, the supply chain and um, cost commoditization and competition. I think we've got to come to the bottom of that somewhere because, uh, you know, there is a value to what we do. But I also see that, you know, we are going to have to look very, very hard in terms of the labor market. And we're going to have to look at whether what we do today and the way we do it is sustainable long term mm -hmm. when we think about engineering of the future and, and, you know, who's going to be the engineer of the future and what are our clients going to ask us. So I think it's a good, it's a good stable base. If I had to call it, I'd say we might see some fragmentation at the top end. It's getting very, very big. But we're all going to have to look to the future and figure out what does value mean tomorrow rather than what it means to today. Just wanted to give Chris and Kate a quick break here. I hope you're enjoying the interview, but I do want to take a minute to once again thank our infrastructure episode sponsor, Red Vector. The team at Red Vector believes knowledge is the most powerful tool available for helping people enrich their lives and meet their professional goals. Red Vector's industry-leading online library includes more than 1,500 engaging accredited courses developed to meet your continuing education requirements and enhance critical skills. Keep pace with an ever-evolving industry. Train with Red Vector. To find out more about Red Vector's continuing education, visit www.redvector.com. So for the young professional that's listening to this mm. podcast who's maybe just out of uni, yeah. five years into their yeah. career, looking at where the industry may be going yeah. over the next 10, 15 yeah. years, what do you think are one or two things that they may want to be looking at doing professionally to align themselves so that they're going to be able to take advantage of what the market's going to look like going down the road? Well, I think there's things you have to look at, but more importantly, there are attributes and characteristics you're going to have to display. And so I think curiosity is the big thing. It's not 
so much what we know in our industry, it's what's going on in the world, what's going on outside our industry as much as what's going on inside our industry. Get curious, you know, get educated around what's happening out in the field. When I was setting up an innovation business, we just didn't look at engineering. And the reason we didn't look at engineering is because we already knew about that. So we looked at the film industry and we went to MIT and looked there at, at, at competitive intelligence. And then we went and looked at lean manufacturing. We tried to take concepts rather than end products and bring them back home into our thinking. So I think the first thing is to get very curious and ask questions, lots of questions. I think as, as engineers and technical people, oftentimes we are risk adverse mm -hmm. and we like a lot of certainty. And this requires us to come out of our comfort zone a little bit. So you have to be a little bit fearless too. I think that's the first thing. The second thing is you have to understand that tomorrow's job is not based on today's success. So as you go through your career and you start thinking about people management and talent management in your mid-levels of your career, and then you get into executive leadership, and then you're trying to find great talent and direct and really sort of give cover to smart people coming through and allow them to fail safely, which we find very difficult because we don't mm -hmm. like to fail at all. And then you get onto executive and governance, and it's a different landscape again. So I think you need to be looking forward in terms of what are the skills that I need for tomorrow whilst doing the job you do very well today. And of course, at the heart of it, again, we're in a people business. And so being technically very competent without the ability to inspire others, I think, limits you as a leader. And so if leadership is, is what you want to do and you want to get into general leadership rather than technical leadership, you need to, to know how to identify and support great talent and you need to know how to inspire them. Certainly, certainly. And I think, you know, one of the key threads that I'm pulling out for the conversation mm -hmm. here is keeps coming back to people. Mm -hmm. And even for those engineers who are looking to purely remain in the technical realm, that mm -hmm. at the end of the day, what they're working on is going to support people. Yeah, and, and even if you're going to be, you know, the chief engineer of your company, then you still need to find a way to communicate to others in a way that inspires them to want to follow their dreams, their technical mm -hmm. dreams. You're going to have to find ways to, to put your standards together, and your specifications together in a way that, that you can disseminate it quickly and easily. You're going to have to be able to communicate so people are here and, and you can be heard. And so I think communication is an important skill because you're always going to be in a people setting, whether it's, you know, internally sort of inspiring the next chief engineer of the future or, or a subject matter expert in front of your clients who often now are not engineers themselves, by the way. And so your communication skills has to match how they assimilate information, not what you want to tell them. So that is something that we need to work on. That's so important. I've learned the hard way myself coming through my career and the, the fact that it's very easy for me to have a, maybe sit down and have a conversation with, a, with an engineer right. and turn around and try to do the same thing with a senior leader who right. happens to be not an engineer, right. to be able to right. put it into their language, to be able to make them be able to assimilate it, understand it, digest it, and decide well, so the, it's the, so important. Well, the, the key of communication is, and, and it takes us a while, I think, for all to figure this out, and we all do it in our own different ways, but um, the key to communication is not what you want to tell people. It's to figure out how they assimilate information, what mm -hmm. matters to them, and then allow them to understand what you're telling them. And to do that, you need to change your style to match the way they think and the way they listen. So often what we get wrong is we stand up in, in front of people that we think are either as technically proficient as we are or care as much as we do. And the reality is we're talking at cross purposes with people and oftentimes that can be off-putting to our clients because um, we make them feel a little bit stupid. And the last thing we want to do is make people feel as if they're, they're, you know, they're in the presence of somebody who can't 
help them understand, which is really what communication is about. Yeah, which end runs counter to being in a client service. Well, it's, it's, a, it's a fairly devastating for a consulting business. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. So I'm going to maybe go a little bit more technical here, just because mm-hmm. again, we've you and I have had conversations in the mm-hmm. past, and I, I know that you've been involved um, a good bit in uh, water system, water utilities mm-hmm. specifically, and private-public partnership arrangements and such like that. Mm-hmm. I'd just be curious to to know your thoughts on private-public partnerships, challenges that come from those, benefits that can come from mm-hmm. them, and whether or not you think that this is something that's a, a really an applicable model that would be exportable across different utility and different infrastructure systems? So I was involved in, I think, the first public-private partnership in the UK in the mid-90s. And the reason for doing it was very simple. The public end, which was a county here in the UK, wanted to try and get a scheme done in nine months for an industrial client that they thought would normally take five years. And so they were trying to fast-track things. And we really didn't have a blueprint about how we were going to do that. But the idea was a sound one. The idea was if you created some sort of team structure rather than the usual interfaces, that you could, in fact, sort of fast-track decision-making. We did do that project, by the way. But we learned some other things along the way. One of the things that we learned along the way was that although you were in a team, just sitting there and relying on each other didn't work. So we needed to start finding teams that had complementary skills to us so that in effect you had an end-to-end capability within a one-shirt team. The second thing we learned was that you need to have some sort of incentive. And so the idea here would be that when things go wrong, you tend to fragment as a business. You each go back to your paymasters, and at that point, there is no team. There's nothing that holds you together. And so the use of incentives became quite popular because at that time it would allow us to work together even when our missions were not aligned. And so incentives became very important. They had to be you know, significant enough to bind our behavior, but not so significant that, you know, we didn't have a competitive tension in the team. So roll on 20 years, and I've been involved in a number of large alliance projects for the big water utilities here in the UK. And what we see is a huge level of additional sophistication. We see teams of up 10, 12 parties at a time with many affiliates, with equity stakes that are sometimes known as skin in the game contracts here, all trying to achieve the same thing, which is, you know, time and cost certainty, risk transfer amongst the parties, and some sort of binding arrangement, which means everybody goes over the line together. There's an argument to say they've become too sophisticated. There's too many parties. We, mm-hmm. we might be going in the wrong direction in terms of levels of complexity. But it is true to say that every time there's an interface, there's an interface risk. And, and what partnering helps you do is try and remove those or find ways for parties to overcome those in a common interest. So common interest is important. We've also learned that partnerships over the long term mature. So you're seeing those durations get a little bit longer, sometimes up to 10, 12 years here in the UK, because they don't do well in terms of short term economic or short term political sure. cycles, because there's a, there's a stakeholder management play that has to be done here. So, so we've learned some things. So the question really becomes, well, what do you do with what you've learned? And can, is it transferable? I think the question was, is it transferable sure. around the globe? Yeah. In theory, yes, in practice, a little harder. So uh, you look at the UK and Asia-Pacific alliance and partnerships are still very, very important here. They're still very prevalent on some of the big programs of work, doing quite well. You go to Canada and they have some legislation in some parts of Canada 
that look at this and say, listen, you know, every project over a certain size or scale should be considered for this type of, whether you call it P3 or public private ship or alliances, whatever you call it, the same sort of concept. Mm-hmm. You know, one shirt team with some sort of common incentive and some sort of equity stake. You go to the States, very different. Shorter political cycles, multi-stakeholder, municipalities struggling with how do you get the benefits over that sort of polit- short-term political cycle. Difficult to do. So I think the state struggles a little bit with, you know, how to embed that in the cycle. But certainly, you know, Asia Pacific has been very, very strong on this for a number of years and will continue to be that. I think the UK cycles through. The UK is interesting because from a water perspective, it's consolidated and they turn to, to rotate, you know, who the lead is, whether one year it might be the contractor one cycle, then it may be the client, then it may be a consultant. Always trying to find, I think, the optimal balance in how to create these alliances. But um, certainly have their place uh, for large, complex, multi-year programs. I think they're very important. They lend themselves where there are, you know, multiples of the same assets in play, and such as the UK water industry. Or where you have lots of stakeholders and you're trying to find a common, a common ground and a common target. Don't do so well, short political cycles, short economic cycles, multiple sure. stakeholders. It's tougher. Okay, that's um, very difficult from a stakeholder standpoint. And we've talked previously about another component of these type of multi-stakeholder mm-hmm. environments mm-hmm. and the, the topic of governance mm-hmm. and how important that can be. And it's typically something that civil engineers, especially younger and earlier mm. in their career may yeah. not be thinking about the importance of governance on a project that they're working mm-hmm. on or even certainly in a program. Curious if you might be able to maybe share a little bit of your thoughts about the importance of governance, specifically when it comes to a program, and maybe share with us an example of uh, one of these multi-stakeholder situations where you saw governance right, where it seemed to be working right. It was essential because when you are looking at program management particularly, you're helping a client run their business. And so you're entrusted with a huge amount of trust and visibility and access to their business success and failure. And so one of the first things we'll do on program management is we'll put a governance model in place, including a stakeholder management plan. We need to know what success looks like for a business, not just what it looks like for a project. So it is absolutely fundamental. Where that might, an example where great governance works very well, and it's a, I'm trying to think of one which is a little bit more surprising to, for your listeners. And it's, and it's probably one way where you talk about knowing your clients so well that you agree when you're going away. And that is a feature of governance. Mm-hmm. When you're on a large program, often multi-year, potentially multi-billions of dollars, and there are you know, political constraints and funding constraints and stakeholder constraints, and business constraints as to how long you can be there. Knowing when you need to go away and agreeing that with your client, I think, is, is a significant issue. It's, it's always a surprising one to, to school consultants on because you actually you don't want to go away. But you do need to go away. And to have a, a relationship where you have access to your client and potentially your client's board. And part of the success criteria that you're working under that governance framework is, you know, what's your exit strategy? So I think that's incredibly important. It also talks to, you know, level of trust that you have with a client that you can agree those things with them because at that point the client understands that you're working in their best interest and not only that you understand that your client is likely to come back again recognizing that you know when to go away 
So good example of governance, I think, would be that exit strategy at the program level. That's great to great to know. And, and even within the project that, or the program that I'm involved in, it's a it's a good takeaway point. I'll make sure that I uh, <laughs> bookmark that one. All right, so Kate, I'm going to shift the uh, conversation a little bit and kind of get into uh, a day in the life of mm. Kate Harris, CEO and, and uh, president. I'm curious to know with the company that you're heading, having operations around the globe, a lot of different activities going on, day-to-day situation, how do you make a determination as to, you know, what's the most important issue now? (laughs) How do you you figure out what you're going to work on in any given day? Well, you know, I I think like everybody you'll interview will all try and tell you that we do this magnificently, and and sometimes it's not. It's a little bit scrappy sometimes, but I got some very good advice throughout my career that says, listen, at some point in time, you're going to have to carve out periods of your schedule, periods of your calendar, where it's just non-negotiable that you're doing something different. And it's a habit I'm getting better at. And so I try and divide my time up into some strategy work, some, you know, meet and greet stuff, working with people, and then some, you know, some flexibility for those things that come up every day. So I've learned in my weekly schedule, not my daily schedule, I can't do it at the daily level, but a weekly schedule, I try and block out a few hours at least to be thinking about the future and where we're going. I then spend my, you know, ride into work, um, speaking to people, key people on the way in and making sure that they're okay, touching base with them, making sure that I'm okay, what's coming up the door, where do they need my help, where do they need my support, where do they need my guidance, and where do they need my involvement. So I kind of segment it through, and then the day starts, and I'll maybe do three or four things that I planned and 300 things that I didn't plan. (laughs) Um, And so you become agile and very flexible very quickly. Your job as the the CEO is to find great talent, set direction and provide support. And so you need to carve out time to do all those three. And and the rest, oftentimes, you know, I'll be talking to my staff and asking them, you know, what help do you need from me? And uh, that will set the pace of the day. In conversations we've had previously, you've you know, you've mentioned to me that you're very interested in innovation yes. and the future. Yes. And I just know from, again, from, and of course the listeners are going, hey, this guy said, yeah. Unfortunately, because I've had a lot of, several conversations yeah. with you about different strategy yeah. and, and so on and so forth. And it's it's clearly evident to me that, that you understand the complexities that go into looking into the future and trying to decipher what the future is going to look like. Yeah. And then more importantly, developing that roadmap. Right. So share with us a little bit about your thoughts about how an engineer can approach looking at, at the future. How do they become a futurist? How do they develop that skill to be able to be innovative beyond the textbook work that they will have done to get to the point that they are today? Well, you know, I think the engineers have got a bit of a head start. I mean, most engineers are life's problem solvers. They're creative. They may not be yet innovative, mm-hmm. but they're creative. And so they have an innate sort of advantage, if you will, in terms of thinking about how do I solve things? And of course, what you see with young engineers and young talent coming through, they are phenomenally full of ideas. It's a bit like children going into kindergarten. They're full of ideas and the bright future. And then, then slowly we teach them what has to be done. You, you sort of lose that in favor of you know, what's been tried and tested. Because, of course, we want to be careful with our clients' uh, resources. We don't want to often be bleeding edge in our industry, but we should be leading edge and we should bring those clever ideas forward. So I think there's a natural advantage. And then I think, I think it's not for everybody. So again, one of my big takeaways in my career is you have to be comfortable with being different. 
And so, you know, some people will be very excited about the future. Some people will not be excited about the future. And so we want to have people have their sort of highest and best use. So for those people that are really interested coming out, we'll see several characteristics in who they are in their, in their kind of personal DNA. These are our curious people. These are people who try to solve things in different ways, not just because of the way it's been done before. And for those people, I think it's, it's quite the challenge to be coming in new into an industry, you know, getting, you know, sort of learning your craft, if you will, through mm -hmm. your project work, but always thinking about, you know, where's the future going? How could I do this differently? And for those people, I think we need to give them different avenues. So in, in our company, you know, like lots of companies, we've just started a young professionals group, but we're actually asking them to use their resources instead of telling them this is what it's going to look like, this is how you're going to be structured, this is how you're going to be involved. We said, you know, you're effectively running a business. We're going to give you some resources. We're going to tell you what a success would look like. Come back and tell us. Know what the future might look like for you as a small group. So, so there are avenues that we try to create for young professionals. We also want them to be connected to their industries. Mm -hmm. We talk a lot about professional societies, and I have a great admiration for being connected in those networks. I think it's very good for peer-to-peer -peer knowledge exchange. But I do wonder why we're not connected into innovation strategies and innovation hubs and business networks. And mm. for those people, I would encourage them to think more deeply and more broadly than just you know becoming professionally accredited and affiliated if you want to know where the future's going the best thing to do is look outside our industry and see what's going on around the world so continue to do more of the same ask questions ask lots and lots of questions you'll irritate people that's okay it's okay and then you look for assignments that that are different you know the assignments that are not linear assignments that take you into strategy role or assignments that take you, you know, in an innovation role like I did. Find a mentor who's different. Find a coach who's different. Find a coach outside your industry. There's lots of things you can do to create excitement around, you know, where the future's going over and above the project that you're working on, I think. So connect and communicate and listen and be very, very curious. All right. Well, Kate, thank you very much. Uh Will you stick around with me for the uh, hot seat segment? I will, yes. All right, everyone, just uh, stand by. We'll be right back. Civil Engineering Podcast. Civil Engineering Podcast. All right, well, Chris is really peppering Kate Harris with quite a few questions, hasn't he? And she's done a great job in answering them with some really thoughtful answers that I hope you'll find to be helpful in your career. And we're not done yet. Chris is about to pepper her with a few last professional development-related questions in our Civil Engineering hot seat segment. But before we do that, I just want to take a moment to recognize our sponsor for this episode, Dan Foss. By 2050, 2.4 billion more people will live in cities. That's going to present a lot of challenges for those of us that work in engineering. We need to build better, smarter infrastructure to support such a significant population increase in urban centers. Danfoss has made it their mission to help pave the way for the communities of tomorrow. They've been developing solutions that make a difference for the past 85 years, and their latest innovations are showcased in a project called Danfoss City. You can go to the fully interactive Danfoss City website right now and see their solutions in action. Smart energy systems, efficient buildings, raising construction sites, just a couple of areas where you can experience how Danfoss is part of the sustainable development of strong infrastructure. Go see for yourself at city.danfoss.com. You can also find the link in the show notes. 
All right, now I'm going to kick it back over to Chris, and he's going to finish this out with our civil engineering hot seat segment. All right, Kate, welcome to the civil engineering hot seat. Ooh. You ready to let me, go? Let me get comfortable. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, the first question is, are, do you have any specific rituals that you practice every day? Uh, for example, do you have a specific morning ritual or a lunchtime ritual? Uh, things that you do consistently on a daily basis that contribute to you being a successful professional. I did see this question beforehand, and I was trying to desperately make myself more interesting than I <laughs> apparently am. <laughs> Actually, I do have a morning ritual. So in the morning, I get in and I look at two or three different media, and I'm always looking for stories that have nothing to do with us, that pique my curiosity. And then normally, as you, you understand from all of our conversations around, you know, what does client service look like? What does innovation look like outside our industry? How do you manage talent? How do you create this wonderful, empowering environment for people to be in. And then I send it to my staff, and it must irritate them. This is normally well before 7 in the morning, and they'll get a little email from me saying, have a look at this, or what do you think? And it's just my way of trying to think about, you know, the world more broadly than the work I do, because I think it's very easy to get consumed in the business you're in and your own schedule and, your, and what you're doing every day. And this is about lifting your head. So I kind of lift my head a little bit at the beginning of the day and say, okay, what's out there before I kind of, you know, tuck in and, and uh, get on with our business. Oh, that's brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. So the next one is, uh, what's one book that you would recommend to engineers regularly, or at least one book that you found to be extremely helpful in your professional career? So I'm not going to recommend a book because I, I actually think the problem with books is that sometimes they're often hugely in vogue. And so we've all read them. And so it's the equivalent of literature groupthink. Mm. So I have, a, as Chris knows, by the way, I have a very big bookshelf of books on a very wide range of subjects that I, I kind of dabble in and out of depending on what I'm trying to solve. I think for today, with so little time, you know, my view would be read three or four articles on different subjects rather than one book. So look at something on innovation, look at something on talent management, look on something on, on business strategy, look at something on uh, the future of technology in our industry. It allows you to do a couple of things. First of all, it allows you to assimilate information much more quickly mm -hmm. than reading a book. Um, so for those of us that are time-strapped, it still allows us to think and get educated. Uh, second of all, it, it creates an agility in your brain. Sometimes, you know, in, in my role and, and other senior roles, you are effectively plate spinning, seven or eight major issues at any given time. And they can switch between subjects. You need to be very, very agile in your mind. And so the ability to pick up two or three articles, disseminate information that is relevant to your industry and your job without being of your industry is an incredibly important skill. What did I learn from somebody else that I'm using today That's is brilliant. important. And then I think the second thing is being able to simulate information quickly. You're going to need to have to be a reasonably quick study. I'm not doing any books, but there are literally hundreds of thousands of articles every day, podcasts like this, you know, social media, whether it's on LinkedIn, Harvard Business Review, any of those things where you can go and gain knowledge really, really quickly in a very short space of time, instantly accessible, that can help frame your thinking. So, so, so no book, lots of articles. I'll, and I'll use that as a plug for uh, everyone listening to go and check out the Engineering Management Institute's blog, where we have plenty of Absolutely. articles that are just packed with uh, great information. Absolutely. So. There's a wealth of knowledge out there. One of the great things about the internet, the great things about the internet is that you can get out there and very quickly 
tap into hundreds of years of experience in 30 seconds. It is, um, and so, you know, small pieces like a blog or something like this or something that's an article, there is no excuse for anybody not to be able to read one or two of those. Absolutely. Great, great advice. All right, I've got one final question. It's the uh, critical civil engineering uh, career elevator advice question. So it's pretty simple. You get into an elevator with a civil engineer, you only have about 30 or 40 seconds with them. What piece of advice do you give that, that young professional, that aspiring civil engineer? All right, well, you have to start by validation, I think. You have to say, you're smart. You have a really noble profession. You're here to do great things. And you should never stop feeling that way. So the first thing is, I think, to, to understand, you know, the higher purpose of, of engineering. And then you have to say, okay, well, what does it mean for you as an engineer? I think there's several things you need to really do. You need to be really curious. You need to be very fearless. We don't like uncertainty. We're often risk adverse in our industry. We often like linear things with certainty, which means that, you know, we're not likely to step out of our comfort zone. We're not likely to do assignments that we don't think we can excel at. Take them. Take that assignment if you can. Really take the assignment because you will learn what you're not good at as well as what you are good at. And that's vital that you know that because when you become a leader, you're going to find people, you're going to to select teammates who play to your weakness, not your strength. That's very, very important that you learn to do that. You need to think about what you're really providing in life. So we talked a little bit about this. It's not about delivering projects. It's about you know, client services, about societal need. How are you going to take what you do and create interest and passion and excitement and value from that? Because if you can do those things and you learn how to communicate those properly, your client will feel them too. And so oftentimes when I'm doing innovation pitches with people, very smart people, and then we say, well, why does it matter? And they tell you about this wonderful technology or how, how very smart the idea is. But that's not what people are passionate about. What people are passionate about is what's in it for them. What does it do for their business issues, their business needs? So you need to start thinking about how you take this wonderful, creative, you know, problem-solving skill that you have and this technical expertise you have and put it in a wrapper where somebody else is as excited about it as you are. And, And that's really, really important to do. So you need to be able to do that too. I think you need to stand back and understand that what you're good at is what you should do. Okay, mm-hmm. so everybody yeah. talks about leadership. And often when I'm looking at managers versus leaders, I see the shift. And I think Chris, you and I were talking about this. We see a shift in managers who it's all about them and how they manage resource and delegate mm-hmm. tasks. And leaders are all about everybody else. If you want to be a technical specialist, you can be a leader, but you may not be a leader of people. And it's okay. It's okay to be the chief engineer of the company. It's okay to be a generalist leader like I am. You should play to your talents. Never expect, you know, having to go into a career path that doesn't play to your passion or your talent. You'll be very miserable and we will miss the skill. So it's very important that you understand that your career path is never going to be linear and it's okay to be an expert in what you want to be an expert in. And then the last thing I think, and again, you know, you and I talked about this, Chris, I wanted to get this in somewhere, so I'm going to get it in now. (laughs) I think it's very important that you understand there's a trade-off to be had. You know, we talk a lot about time management and we talk a lot about, you know, work-life balance. And I listen to people talk about as if they've cracked that. I don't know that it's real, frankly. I think what we do is we do trade-offs at different parts of our career, depending on our family situation, depending on, you know, our resilience and our appetite for what we're doing. I've certainly turned down roles which you'd look at and you'd say, why would you ever do that? 
from a career perspective, it looked like career suicide, but actually it was the right thing to do at the time. I either wasn't ready or I wasn't right for the role, or the trade-off wasn't there for me. I had a family situation where I couldn't commit what I needed to commit. Um, you know, we often talk about that as a female issue. I don't think it is a female issue. I think it's a business issue. You know, we're all relying on partners and colleagues and spouses and our networks to help us do what we do every day. My last bit of advice would be to say, it's not one speed. You will take your foot off the gas and it will be okay. You can come back and you can put your foot back on the gas and you can get to where you want to be. So, but my last thing would be to understand you don't actually need to be know that tough on yourself you know life life uh, our careers are 30 40 years long these days and within that 30 40 years you don't have to have one speed so it's all about the trade-offs that's fabulous thank you very much You're very very, very good input thank you kate for uh, coming on to the show and uh look forward to many more conversations thanks very much chris all right i hope you enjoyed Chris's interview with Kate Harris, president and CEO of Stanley Consultants, as much as I did. I, I was taking notes as I listened to it before we published it. It was really, really awesome. Really excited and happy that she did that for us. And I really had a blast with this whole infrastructure series. And thank you for those that supported it. Thanks again to Red Vector and Dan Foss for sponsoring it. You can look for other series like this coming up, working on one right now on surveying and different surveying technologies for the fall. All right. The other thing I want to mention, some important information to get out there. We are in the midst of a membership drive for our Engineering Management Institute. We just launched a membership drive. And through the end of August, we have the best rate ever on our professional membership for our Engineering Management Institute community. What is it? It's a private forum. We do monthly webinars on topics related to engineering management and leadership. We put out engineering manager minute videos. They're one minute videos that I put out to our community every other week so that you can watch a one minute video and get a great management tip. And then you can apply it. And you have the forum where you could see coaching guidance and talk to other motivated engineers. If you're interested in joining, it's the best time to do it between now and the end of August. Just go to engineeringmanagementinstitute.org forward slash podcast EMI, which stands for Engineering Management Institute. So that's engineeringmanagementinstitute.org forward slash podcast, all lowercase, no spaces, podcast, EMI. And it will take you to the page where you can become a member. And if you use the coupon code podcast, all lowercase podcast, believe it or not, you will get an additional 5% off of the best offer that we've ever made on this community. So I hope you'll consider joining us. We are just having very, very interactive webinars. People are getting a lot out of the community. And I am absolutely thrilled with just all the friendships that we're building there. All right. So remember, you can find the show notes for this episode at civilengineeringpodcast.com and look for episode number 94. There you'll find a summary of the key points discussed in today's episode, as well as links to any of the resources, websites, or books mentioned during the episode. Until next time, I wish you all the best in your civil engineering career endeavors. Thank you for listening to the Civil Engineering Podcast. Be sure to visit civilengineeringpodcast.com where you can listen to past episodes and also submit your project to be featured on the show. We also invite you to visit our main website at engineeringcareercoach.com and download a free three-part video series created specifically for engineers to help you best utilize LinkedIn for networking, improve your communication and speaking skills, and also help to develop your leadership abilities. 
Now is the time to engineer your own success. 